and welcome back to Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen. It's been a long time. My name is Sam, and of course, I am joined by my friend, old college roommate, and podcasting partner, Sean. How are you after all this time? I'm doing great, Sam. It's always lovely to have a new episode to do, especially on St. Patty's Day. Oh, is today St. Patty's Day? It is. It is. See, this is the uh, the Jewish and Irish divide between us. I have no idea that it was St. Patty's Day. I actually hate St. Patty's Day. I hate I hate St. <laughs> Patty's Day, the 4th of July, and New Year's Eve, all because they share one common trait, which is drunks in the streets, which I just cannot stand. And I've never had a good St. Patty's Day. I never had, like, the wild, crazy St. Patty's Day. It's always raining for whatever reason, never at St. Patty's Day. It would so be funny if you stuff. actually only had wild and crazy St. Patty's Days, but every single time you've blacked out in your own bed, and as a result, didn't remember that you did anything that day. Yeah, you just wake up with a headache and be like, oh, well, that was boring. Yeah, exactly. Um, so let's let's talk about two things. Let's get two things out of the way. The first is, I'm sorry it's been a very long time uh, since we did an episode. Two things happened in my life. The first is I had a baby uh, in November, so I had to take some time off. And then the second thing is I moved. So I'm officially like in a new house and yada, yada, yada. Real life happens and Sean and I plan to basically start up again more consistently and just consider the break like a season break. Imagine all those episodes before was the first season and now we're in the second season, which leads me to my transition into the second thing. This second season is going to be slightly different and it's only based off of sort of an observation, mainly by Sean, but something I knew he'd pick up on about me. And it's not because we want to do it this way. It's just the reality of the situation, which is this. I'm a movie guy, as you all know. I love movies. Books are secondary to me when it comes to film. Um, I usually digest most of my fiction through movies and most of my nonfiction through books. However, this is really a literature podcast. This is mainly a podcast where we read fictional books. The problem is most of the books that interest me, uh, they interest me because they were movies I've seen. It's like, oh, this is based off a book. And as I've said before, I really think it's a great thing to read a book after you've seen the movie. So nearly every single time I pick a book, it's because I've seen the movie first and I want to read the book now. So what we've decided to do in a lot of ways out of necessity and also to give us somewhat of a gimmick, which will actually tie into our uh, our title, which we did not initially plan for, was just to make the new gimmick that Sean's books are going to be strictly books, books that have not been made into movies. And my books, for the most part, are going to be books that were turned into movies, unless we can both agree, you know, or if I think of a book that, uh, you know, I think would be really great to read that was never turned into a movie. But unfortunately, every time I try and think of a book, it's usually a movie that I found. So that's going to be the new gimmick and actually sort of the beginning of today's podcast. Yeah, and I think it will work out a lot better moving forward. Consider season one to be our origin story. You yeah, know, we right. didn't re- we, we came in with one idea that we wanted to both uh, read more and talk about books that we loved more. Uh, but our, we didn't have a clear design on how we would pick and choose the books. So throughout our first couple of episodes, uh, you know, it would just be a hodgepodge. Some of my books were made into movies. Some of Sam's books weren't. But from now on, I think it'll be a little more consistent. And I'm excited because we're starting with The Maltese Falcon today, which was a book that I picked, but happens to be a 
also been adapted into a movie. So if it's confusing, it's fine. This is a one-off at the beginning. And uh, let's just dive right into the book. So I picked you, this You know, book Sean, from... you could have lied. Yeah. You could have lied. I there. did. I definitely could have. I could have said You could have lied. You, you missed a perfect opportunity to lie. Um, and that's okay. Look, he's an honest guy. Uh, but... Edit it audience. out the post. So no, this I'm is not editing it. Sam I'm not. I'm not. Yeah, right. No, no way. Now you know Sean is honest to a fault. Um, anyways, Sean, who's going to do the uh, the description of this book? Because in my opinion, um, we could describe the plot of this book, or we could say that most of you have seen the plot of this book in some form or another in like hundreds of spoofs and homages to this book. Think of this book as sort of the originator of the hard-nosed, smarter-than-everybody detective where a dame walks into his office with a sad story and a mystery to solve, only the problem is nobody is what they seem. Um, Sean, had anyone done this before, the Maltese Falcon? That's kind of a a loaded question. Uh, In what, what way do you mean, like, the this private investigator type of stereotype or the detective novel in general well this this trope right i mean this has been done now i mean even look like raymond chandler when when you suggested the maltese falcon i thought it was a raymond chandler novel i didn't know Mm. somebody else actually wrote it so my question is hard-nosed detective where a dame walks into his office with a uh with a story to tell but only she's not what she seems is that is this the first time that was ever done, or do we have to say that this is some sort of iteration of Sherlock Holmes? What this is kind of falls under what I like to call like the generalized American crime kind of novel. Previously, there had been like these, uh, you would go to the newsstand and they would have these little uh, nickel books that would tell of like the adventurous detectives. Mm-hmm. Um Especially considering that Dashiell Hammett, the author, was a working member for the Pinkertons. Oh, now, wow. The Pinkertons, as like a history lesson, was like this uh, detective agency that eventually blew up to become something that was uh, a, like a private army for corporations. But I think we'll talk more on that later. As Al Swearingen once said, Pinkertons, I hate those bastards for you Deadwood fans out there. It's fascinating. There's a lot that we can get into that, but more on that later. But as to your question of, uh, was this the first? I would think that I I can't be definite, but this is kind of the iconic setting that whenever you think of a private eye, what do you think of? You think of a guy in a shabby suit with his feet up on his desk that's covered in loose-leaf papers and cigarette ashes. There's a half-empty bottle of bourbon. And because of all the movies, it's for whatever reason in black and white when you picture it in your head. So this yeah, one I, is kind of a mold-forming book. Yeah, I think Sam Spade, who is the P.I. in this movie, is the archetype for basically every P.I. after him. Um, even if you watch that stupid uh, show, Perry Mason, that was on HBO recently, which technically was an old radio show about a lawyer, but they start it where he's a P.I., and of course he's basically Sam Spade. And every P.I. after this basically seems to be Sam Spade in one way or another, Sam Spade being the main character of this novel. And not only that, but like I see 
um, character traits like in guys like Indiana Jones in Sam Spade. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I think this character is incredibly influential. And in some ways, if Sherlock Holmes invented a kind of genre, I think this did the same thing, but Americanized it. In a lot of ways, he is the American Sherlock Holmes, a sort of misanthropic, um, smarter than everybody uh private investigator i mean sherlock holmes was not a detective even though they called him what he was a private investigator he didn't have a badge you know like he wasn't detective grade on the police force um and mm-hmm. in many ways i think sam spade is the american sherlock holmes yes uh the american private investigator gets this kind of awesome mythos where it's it's in this gray moral area he has so he has to basically present themselves as an authority figure mm-hmm. when really they can't arrest you, they can't throw you in jail, they can't impose a fine. They have to work under the restrictions of the law like everybody else. However, because they're not working directly with the state and the law, they're allowed to they have some wiggle room in what they're allowed to do. So modern day private eyes, they're not doing like anything like this. They're probably just trying to, you know, handle like infidelity cases. And I was going to say, I bet I bet 70% of their cases are cheating husbands. Yeah, but that was still a part of the, the jobs milieu back then was shadowing people, trying to figure out what, you know, what one party was doing, if another party was interested in it. Uh, like try to get maybe uh, say somebody had, stolen money from you or something from you but you had stolen it and you wanted it back it was like the private investigator's job to to kind of close their eyes to the whole legality of what was going on and accept the paycheck which is i think entirely and an american kind of concept like so that's something i want to get into that is something i want to get into the americanness of this but continue yeah, Sherlock Holmes was an upstanding gentleman. You know, he might have been on cocaine, but he was he was going after the bad guys. He didn't do it for the money. The he guys. did it for the thrill of the mystery. You're right. Yeah, You're absolutely right. He was not a capitalist. Intelligence. Whereas yeah. on the other hand, uh, Dashiell Hammett's Spade is very much in it for the money. He doesn't. Yeah. He everything else. He won't sell himself out. He has a moral compass. And he knows when to, you know, where the line is, but he will he won't cross that line. You know, he right. will never he always has that code underneath. But and this still, is something he's willing to yeah. dip his toes. And before we get into the particular Americanness of this book, which really fascinates me, let me just give a very quick loose overview of the plot. Sam Spade is a private eye. One day a woman he first calls Mrs. Wonder Miss Wonderful and at, or and then uh and then her name turns out to be O'Shaughnessy. She comes into his office, she's got a mystery for him to solve. Somehow his partner that he doesn't even like winds up dead, and as a result, what it turns out is that O'Shaughnessy, aka Miss Wonderful, uh this big fat guy in this I think he's is he Egyptian? Um this like really effeminate, ridiculous Egyptian homosexual character. <laughs> no, his Our, name is just his name's just Joel Cairo. Yeah, Cairo. That's why I thought he was yeah. Egyptian. But anyways, they're all after the same thing, which is, is a, which is a statue of a falcon that basically dates back to the Knights of Malta and then somehow got their found its way into the hands of like the Ottoman Sultan, uh, which is supposedly like um, 
it's covered in like black paint, but supposedly inside it's like solid gold, and maybe there's like jewels and rubies on it, and is and is and is worth you know, you know, un, unforeseen millions or whatever the value is at that time, and they're all after this one statue, and of course, Sam Spade is involved, and part of the problem is he's got a dead partner, a police force that actually suspects like him of committing the crime. Yada, 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 you know, hijinks ensue. Um, and we'll get into the characters in a little bit. But the first thing I wanted to mention about this book, the thing I found most fascinating about it, and I like this book, by the way. You could call it The Maltese Falcon, which he did, or you could call it um, The White Man Against Everyone. And what I mean by that is that basically, <laughs> oh, in this world, no, just hear me out, right? In this world, whenever he wrote this book, do you know what year he wrote it? Let me take a look. I got the Wikipedia up right now. Uh 1930, published in 1930. This is perfect. In this world, you got a man, the white man, smarter than everyone, and literally he is besieged on all fronts by every single demographic of society. Women, homosexuals, foreigners, the obese, teenagers. (laughs) Um, and, And he can't trust any of them. None of them. He can never at any time let his guard down. I mean, this is really important. The character can never let his guard down. He can never show any vulnerability because to do so would mean that he's a sucker or as he calls it, a sap. And at that point, these other forces of the world will immediately descend upon him. Um, It's really fascinating uh, how it's it's this one character versus the world. Um, And of course... He ends up the winner in the end, and everyone else the loser. But I just found that really, really interesting. The um, I don't know what you call—not the nihilism of it, but the xenophobia. Pure, yeah, the xenophobia, and I, I don't want to get too political about it, but just sort of the idea of that this guy can't trust anyone. The world is out to get him. Um, it's you know, it's such a it's such a bleak outlook. On, on civilization it's really really bleak and this hero yeah. while incredibly admirable um in terms of his his toughness his intelligence uh but at the same time he cannot at any time sort of enjoy the camaraderie of the world he is a true loner it's it's really uh it is a book of its time and not only that but i think that you know i know a lot of movies from that time and and all these characters, they're really similar. They're just these white men trying to survive in a hostile world. And I'm not really sure where that outlook comes from. Maybe it's the result of World War One, and then fascism in Europe and just the instability of the first half of the 20th century. It's super fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all valid points. Once uh, Spade gets involved in this case... He, I think his main goal is to make sure that he's nobody's fool. He, he's not going to be, I like how he uses the term sap. Like sap means like, oh, well, he got sentimental and he, and he fall for Miss O'Shaughnessy. Or he was a sap because he fell for uh, the fat man. His name is Gutman or Gutman. Gutman, maybe. Gutman, even? yeah, of course. Gutman, gut, you know what I mean. Like, right. I was like, that's an even, amazing. That's an, that was we, a, I could make an entire an podcast, by the way, just about him. But continue. Yeah, he didn't want to be. Uh, he didn't want to be bought and sold. He didn't want to like serve for money. <clears throat> he actually wanted to figure out like 
who killed his partner? What is this Falcon? Is it even real? Um, but most of all, he was his he was his own person, and he kept his ideals according to the job. Now, I think a little bit of this is what you touched on was the real world fears at the time. You know, the rise of communism. The you know the after effects of World War One. And the other thing that I think is fascinating about the American detective stories, at least the early ones, is they all largely take place out on the West Coast. It's kind oh, of yeah. like they're always they're the, always San Francisco, L.A. You're right. They're hardly ever New York City. And I think they can only exist there because private eyes are a remnant of kind of the American expansionism slash Wild West. And the Pinkerton involvement in that. Like, I don't think the American detective would exist if you didn't have a, an organization like the Pinkertons. You're uh, right. In some ways, could... they're gunslinging, they're gunslinging Western vigilante types. You're right. In some ways, yeah. that's what they are. Where they could operate where the state wasn't able to or refused to or weren't competent enough. So you you ha if you had a if you were a man on the East Coast or a company, and you had dealings out in the West, and you think you were getting a bad you know a bad getting screwed over or something, you couldn't depend on the local sheriff to make it right. There may uh, not be one. To, there may not yeah, be a there, local sheriff. You had to send somebody out, and have them take care of the problem for you, operating in that gray area before this the individual state was formed or when the laws were shaky. So you were able to have these kind of mercenary-like figures that had to rely on their own judgment of right and wrong. And, you know, if you sent the wrong person to fix your problem and they ended up getting uh, offered more money because they were mercenaries, they would take it and, you know, go the other way. So and now me, we have these... Yeah. Go ahead. I was going to let me tell you something. The, the phrase toxic masculinity does not exist mm -hmm. when this book is written. And I'd be really interesting to see poor Sam Spade try and operate in the world today. Um, you know, just some well, hipster think... being like, you know, oh, we don't do that anymore. I, I don't think that this book ever takes the opinion that uh, Sam Spade is, you know, he hates everybody. That's why he's doing this job. No, He true. just wound up in this bad situation having to deal with this it's like eclectic cast of uh you know i wouldn't even call them villains or necessarily bad people they're all just opportunists looking out for themselves they're all capitalists you know, none of them which is part of the yeah. other american you know you know uh self-preservation and victory is the highest aim it's, it's the ultimate achievement there's nothing else beyond it exactly and they're all they're all operating with this ancient or the Maltese Falcon is what they're all after, and any uh, like any authority that comes into it, like contact with it, would try to confiscate it, put it in a museum, right. or use it to further their own ends. But not Whereas only these that, every like, every encounter that they have, so every scene when there's two characters in a scene, 
is a battle. I mean, have you realized, like, did you notice that, basically, that, like, every single time there are two characters interacting, it's a battle of wits. It is literally one character trying to come out on top of the other in any given circumstance, even if it's just a conversation, which is a very capitalist mentality. It is just, there has to be a victor and a loser. Never at one time does any character, you know, do they really work cooperatively for a common goal? No, only when they're forced into it at gunpoint do they ever. And even then, they're not really. Even then, there's still <laughs> yeah. someone still devising a scheme to get one over on somebody else. I mean, it is, like I said, it is a really bleak thing. Um, now you mentioned how you know what what Sam Spade, you know what he thinks or what he doesn't think, but the truth is, and one really interesting thing about this book. And some reason it kind of reminded me of reading The Godfather was this book does not write the thoughts of any character. It is written no. almost like a screenplay. It is entirely, you can only derive uh, any type of interpretation from the dialogue and the character actions. The author does not provide you an insight into the character's inner thoughts. This is not Dune. You do not get any internal monologue. You do not even say, you don't even get the author saying, you know, Sam Spade got angry. It just doesn't work that way. Yeah, it's all very on the page. Uh, Yeah, it's really cool, actually. He doesn't take any shortcuts. He purely shows. He never tells. And in novels, that's not a thing. Like, there's no, you know, that's a movie thing, show, don't tell. But he actually applies that logic in this novel, which I found fascinating, and I can see why it has been adapted to the screen so many times and why so many other movies have taken this framework and just made new stories out of it. Yeah, and it's it's just a constant string of events. One thing yeah. always leads to the next, and I kind of hate it in a in a story like this, especially in a crime novel where everybody's trying to get this, you know, they're trying to, to reach their goal. It is always the biggest momentum killer to have your protagonist be like, oh, I was so tired and I had to sit down and think about everything that was going on. It's like, no, that's the reader's job to think about what's going on. I don't need a little author insert recap. I just want the action. I want what what are the characters doing? How are they interacting? You know. Yeah, Dashiell Hammett, the author, by the way, great name. Not pretending to be an artist. He you know what I mean? No. He's writing a story like he'd be telling a story like orally and it just it it is it just moves swiftly. Um it's pure plot. And at the same time, the characters are incredibly realized. You know, Sean, I haven't asked you this yet, and normally it's like one of the first things I do in a podcast, but did you like this book? I don't think it's it's kind of hard to to judge this book. It's it's entertaining, it's short. Like I could recommend it to anybody, and I would definitely recommend it as one of the first books if somebody came up and said hey, I want to get into detective books or pulp novels or even crime novels. This would be on a very, very short list of, hey, read The Maltese Falcon. If you like it, you'll like almost any other book in the genre. It's a great place to start. Yeah, I mean, I think it has a striking parallel to A Scandal in Bohemia, which is one of the first Sherlock Holmes stories. Um because it's just like it's just creating this entire archetype that's going to be copied for years on end. Uh, let's get into sort of the nitty gritty on the book, Sean. Did you have a favorite character? Um, I kind of, 
I mean, how could you not like Spade? Yeah, I mean, I think you're supposed to. Uh, but I also like that uh, the businessman, Casper Gutman, he was just kind of like, he was so comfortable that he had always been able to buy his way, like buy whoever stood in his way, that when he actually had to negotiate with Spade, he really went to some, Gutman went through to some dark extremes to try and get uh, Spade either in trouble or to give up the information. And um, I think it's interesting in the movie adaptation they what they cut out. But I don't know. What was your favorite character? So my favorite character is absolutely Gutman. Um, now, yeah. I listened to the book, which was a fantastic experience on multiple levels. Uh, the first was that the narrator, he's really going for it. I mean, he is like, this is his audition for Hollywood, is this audiobook. Um, and one of the great parts was his interpretations of Cairo and Gutman. Cairo might have been one of the most offensive character uh, portrayals I've ever seen from an audio narrator. I mean, he literally, he talked like these, like like a, like a <laughs> half Asian, half Egyptian homosexual. Like, it was so ridiculously cartoonish, and I loved it. But his Gutman was unbelievable. He, he talked like this. And so basically, the character of Gutman, the thing I love so much about him, is that he sees it all as a game. He sees it for what it is. He, uh, at one point, I mean, he has this sort of, like, he tells Sam Spade that, like, he admires the fact that Spade uh, is the most, like, difficult adversary he's ever come across. Um, he's got, this guy has a love of language. He loves to hear the sound of his own voice. And just the way that the dialogue flows from this guy's mouth, because everybody else is kind of terse and short, right, in terms of their dialogue. But this guy, Gutman, is eloquent and he just loves to talk and it reminds me almost like of a Coen Brothers character. Um, just the flowing ridiculousness of this guy's dialogue. I, I just don't see what's not to like. And like, imagine you were John Goodman or some slightly like overweight actor. This is a dream role. Yeah, I think he most reminded me um, from what was the movie? Was it Network? With some yeah. of the, I'm mad as hell, I'm not going to take it anymore. Yeah, that's network. Okay, and he gets brought into the head of the network's office. Yeah, that's the guy the, from Deliverance. The, the guy in Deliverance. Yeah. I, I can't remember that dude's name. I'll figure it but out But he second. delivers my favorite movie speech of all time, where he talks about, you're messing with forces you can't comprehend, and he just you know lays it all out there. That's what Gutman was to me, was, but like a very, on a miniature scale. He's By the way, that guy, that actor's crook. name is Ned Beatty. Yeah, Ned Beatty rocks it in that one. Um, those are that I think Gutman's an easily he's a favorite character, but I think the most interesting character in this entire book is Spade's secretary slash assistant Effie. How come? Because she does so much heavy lifting in this book. Effie is his secretary and also his shield. If if a part of the book that you pointed out was that it's like the white man versus like everything, you know, known to man. Mm-hmm. Also, Spade's relationship with women is incredibly yeah. interesting because one of the, the part of the plot is that Spade, his partner gets murdered after shadowing uh, Bridget O'Shaughnessy and... The police think that Spade is involved because Spade's having an affair with his partner, his dead partner's wife. 
Now, when O'Shaughnessy gets involved and uh, starts getting wrapped up with Spade, uh, Spade has to put Effie in between him and O'Shaughnessy in order to find out if O'Shaughnessy's like on the level. He doesn't have like it's kind of like Spade openly admits that he needs a woman insight to determine if Bridget O'Shaughnessy is telling the truth or can be trusted or can be worked worked with. So without Effie have like tying everything together, I think I don't know how else the book would go. Do you kind of pick up what I'm saying? Absolutely. Like, and she also serves as his incredibly exasperated moral compass. Um, I mean, that's yeah. sort of her role. She's the person actually trying to get him to think about more than just himself at the end of the day. Uh, she often advocates for Miss O'Shaughnessy, despite the fact that she knows in some ways that O'Shaughnessy's up to no good. Um, yeah, she, I mean, she is, she's also another trope, right? She is uh, Money Penny from Bond. She is, uh, what's it, what do you call it, um, Miss Hudson from Sherlock Holmes. She is mm-hmm. the exasperated, put-upon, um, secretary type and also like moral center for an otherwise cold and um, you know uh, self-interested character. Uh, these yeah. these women in them in their own ways are also archetypes. The question they're is, like mother, is she like the, mother surrogates? Yeah. Now I don't know when James Bond. Yeah, they are. That's right. They're mother surrogates and and possible romantic interests. And it's always like you need to get four or five books in before like something like that will even be made a reality. Like I don't know if Bond and Money Penny ever made good. Right, but there's got to be some like bottleneck incident where they both get stuck on an island, and then yeah, right. their like long hidden feelings or buried feelings start rising to the surface. Oh, that would be so corny. But I don't think a writer like Hammett would ever, you know, go that direction. That will they, won't they. Kind well, of what else did Hammett write? Stories. What else? What else did this guy write? Because I was convinced he was Raymond Chandler, which made it really oh. interesting to me. Uh, two of his other more famous works are *The Thin Man*. Oh, the okay. Thin Man is about a rich, uh, a rich New York couple that kind of solve mysteries on the side. Uh, they're not officially detectives. Uh, and then the other one. Uh, I'm surprised you didn't know was the book called Red Harvest, which no, never heard is of it. the book. It's the book that Miller's Crossing is based off of. Oh no way! I had no idea Miller's Crossing was actually based off a novel. Yeah, very very loosely, only in kind of like the plot setup where one man gets involved between uh, two rival gang fights. Mm-hmm. That's my favorite Dashiell Hammett. That one's a really good book. Um, well, like did... exceptionally good book. <laughs> Did Raymond Chandler sort of steal Dashiell Hammett's thunder as being like considered the preeminent PI uh, novelist? I have no idea. I think they both contributed in their own in their own ways. I mean, they're well, both they're both household names. I think. Well, I'm, I think well, Dashiell Hammett is it's less famous than Chandler. Yeah, there's no question. Um, so I guess Chandler does win like the the big money prize. As yeah, far I'm as trying fame to figure goes. out right now if they were contemporaries or not. I think they had to have been. I'm, well, yeah, I mean, I, I think you're right. I, I do, yeah, they were contemporaries. The question is, like, I guess the question is, oh, here we go. Um, it literally in the first in the first paragraph of Wikipedia, the uh, 
the the comparisons already begin. The protagonist of his novels, Philip Marlowe, likes Hammett's Sam Spade, is considered by some to be synonymous with private detective and Sorry, guys, that's my baby waking up. Uh, and and uh, both those, you know, guys were also played by the same actor, Humphrey Bogart. That's funny, yeah. Uh, well, I yeah, mean, because I think also Humphrey Bogart is such a weird choice to pick to play Spade. Yeah, I, didn't, the, I don't like the, it at all, and I didn't even see the movie, but I don't like it. Yeah, in the book, Sam Spade is described as kind of like a, an ex-football player, like at least six foot broad-shouldered he's described as having like blonde hair and you know like wolf-like features like very sharp well-defined features and it's not it's just when i think it's really funny that bogart's kind of uh profile like usurped like the dashiell hammett's idea for what the character looks like you mean bogart looks like he had a stroke (laughs) like all the time yeah just he has a droopy face yeah he Bogart's an interesting choice because he looks like somebody that would, you know, could play either side. He doesn't right. present himself. And, and as... I think that's the idea. It's like John Wayne doesn't actually look like a cowboy, but there's something no. about the way John Wayne delivers lines, you know, that there's, there's something about John Wayne that it seems quintessential with the American myth of the cowboy. And I think Humphrey Bogart more than anybody represents the cold calculating, uh, self-preserving, white man with some sort of moral compass of that time. So I don't, I don't think he necessarily needs to look like, uh, like Sam Spade in order to play the character. You know, it's, if anything, like it's less of a departure than apparently uh, Tom Cruise playing Jack Reacher, which I don't know if you guys have seen those movies versus the TV show, but like a total, oh, by the way, this actually connects Jack Reacher is a perfect example of another character clearly influenced by this kind of character. Only the difference is they decided to make Jack Reacher the biggest man on earth as well as a detective, which I find incredibly offensive. Because uh, I think that you, <laughs> yeah. can't, you can't be giant and hulking and also smart, like smarter than everybody else. Like, it's not fair. Like, you have to choose one. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, to go back to, like, an earlier point, um, about like the being every man versus the world. I think a lot in the hallmark of these kind of crime novels is that they're supposed to be escape fantasies, power mm-hmm. fantasies, where it's like anybody can be like, oh, well, I, uh, you know, I outsmarted them all or I, I could beat them up. Um, and it really kind of warps the idea of what a good detective should actually be. Like a good detective should be able to, you know, weave in and out of any type of society, whether it's on the, the right or wrong side of the law, and kind of be an unassuming character. Not like a like a hulky punch first, ask questions later kind of person. Mm-hmm. Um like Spade, I think there's like there's a Gutman has a uh, like a henchman named uh, Wilmer Cook. Yeah. And he's described as like a young, like hot-headed gunslinger. And, and possibly and- Cairo's lover. And possibly Cairo's lover. We can't yeah. be entirely sure. At one point, uh, Spade directly calls him Cairo's boyfriend, which was pretty yeah. uh, which is pretty forward and, uh, for that time to just like openly accuse his character of being a homosexual. 
Yeah, it's. I mean, it's definitely derisive and in a mocking tone. Like, oh, that's your yeah. There's no question. He's no. He's calling out the character for yeah. being a homosexual. It's like it's not even. It, it, there's no. There's no if ends or buts about it. In fact, it's funny that you know uh, Dashiell Hammett had no problem having his character one of his characters be a homosexual and called out for it so that there's no ambiguity about it. But at one point in the book, uh, Wilmer, I believe, is supposed to say fuck you to Spade, but he won't say the word fuck in the book. But he directly he directly alludes to the fact he said fuck. I, I thought that was really interesting, you know, what he had to censor himself with versus what he didn't. Yeah, okay, so let's talk about that. Like, okay. Let's talk about the... Uh, the grittier aspects of this novel, because even though there's what two murders, I would think mm-hmm. in the first 30 pages, would you consider this book to be tame? No, I wouldn't. I would not consider it to be tame, but only if you judge tameness around whether or not like based off of like, if it's like game of Thrones, like is tameness based on, you know, if a, if a guy stabbed through the eye or is tame based on the idea of a hostile world where no one can trust each other and, you know, uh, Spade is willing to sleep with a gal one minute and then send her to prison the next. Like, if, if you're talking about tame in terms of violence and language, then sure, it's tame. But if you're mm-hmm. talking about subject matter and themes, it's not tame at all. No, it, it, it goes there in a couple of cases, which I, I found interesting. Everybody does check themselves on language. Which, you know, I always got to admire. Right now, personally, I'm trying to cur- like swear and curse less. Yeah. And, and not even in that goofy replace the word, like say feck instead of the, the regular word. Or, or, or frack, like Battlestar yeah. Galactica. Or, or say like Christmas cookies or yeah. something. No, no replacement like, words. Actually using, actually using language and proper grammar to say what you mean. Yeah, stop and think for three seconds, and I, I, I'm just having. I feel, there's something respectable about that when you check yourself on language. Absolutely. I used to swear like all the time, and it, as I get older, it's you realize, wait, it is a bad way to talk. But anyway, um, but also there's one point where there's implied heroin use, mm-hmm. or like like intravenous drugs of some sort, and Gutman. Uh, injects it into his own daughter or has his henchmen do it yeah in order to get her to impersonate bridget o'shaughnessy over the phone um and then there's that the one of the scenes towards the end where it's like a trust where exercise uh spade makes bridget o'shaughnessy strip down in front of him in a bathroom to show that she's not hiding anything from him neither of which were included in the movie adaptation well you Rude definitely you, you definitely can't include the strip scene um in the movie it's just not possible uh because you know it's got to fade out or do a circle a circle wipe you know what i mean like they didn't yeah. show love scenes they're certainly they're certainly not going to show scenes that like appear borderline rapey you know what I mean? they're just they're just not going to do it N- not in that way at least yeah um and then yet yeah, there's there's life and death are on the line here I think there's one more person that gets killed by the end of the book. Uh, the Like the captain ends up getting shot. Well, there's a more boat, than that, a, but we won't give it away. Yeah. A, a boat gets set on fire. <laughs> yeah, right. There's some, pretty, there's some pretty decent stuff in here. So don't expect when you go to read a book that's uh, 90 years old, 90 plus years old, that it's going to be like some tame trip through Disney World. 
There's no. a lot of cool crime stuff in here that I think would get a lot of average readers' attention. Yeah, we forget that people of yesteryear were just like us. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they, they'd read a book and be like, yeah, that was gritty. Like, for them, they didn't were like, oh, my gosh, and, like, gasp. Like, we just sort of look at the movies and the censorship of the movies, and we just assume that applies to all aspects of society. But the truth is it doesn't. And I don't see anything, like, I look at, like, something like Game of Thrones. Nothing about Game of Thrones is gritty. It's just, it's just gratuitously violent. And I think we, um... We mistake, like, people, the word dark is so misused in the year 2022 because we, we always say, oh, it's like Spider-Man, but it's like a dark Spider-Man, or it's a this thing, but it's a dark this thing. And we and we just really are actually confusing, uh, like, sort of cynical, nihilistic, um, you know, uh, really bleak and grim uh, thematic work with gratuitousness of some sort, gratuitous sex, gratuitous violence, but they're not always the same thing. They don't necessarily interact with each other. It's why not all horror movies are actually bleak. They're just gratuitous. Um, and this mm-hmm. movie, I think, isn't... I'm Not this movie, sorry. This book, I think, is, is really gritty and dark. It's just not gratuitous. Yeah, it's impactful. When That's things right. happen, it's insane like because you're going to read like a lot of dialogue a lot of sparring of wits and then all of a sudden something really uh uh, forceful shakes up the plot line uh there's always the danger of somebody hiding a gun in a pocket one wrong word one you know somebody following you plugs you in the back and i just think that that kind of simplicity is something that we need to get back to as far as storytelling goes. Not only that, but choices and consequences. Yeah. Not only that, but choices and consequences. So, all right, guys, I'm going to spoil something. So now, if you haven't actually read this book and you don't want me to spoil it or you don't want it to be spoiled, stop listening now, read the book and come back at this point. Um, Yeah. Thanks for listening and sticking with us. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm going to spoil it right now. Right. If you want to talk about like grim, the end of this book where he decides to turn in, um, O'Shaughnessy, his his lover, into the police, right, is so fascinating on a variety of levels. On one level, it's fascinating because he may or may not love her, okay, and she professes to love him. The second reason it's fascinating is that he says to her that as long as they don't hang her, okay, as long as the, the, the justice system decides not to hang her for the murder of his partner, he will wait for her on the outside. I mean, what an unbelievable, like, he, he loves her enough to wait for her, but he's still going to send her to prison, but he's only going to wait for her as long as they don't execute her. And then not only that, he's turning her into the police for twofold reasons. One, because he won't be anybody's sap. He, will, he cannot live his life knowing that she got one over on him. And then the second thing is that he's not doing it for the justice of his partner, a partner he didn't even like, and he says she did him a favor by killing him, but based off of the fact that as a private eye, if he were to not solve the case of his own partner's death, it would just be bad business for him. I mean, all Mm -hmm. of that, all those reasons for the choice he makes to send her to prison are so incredibly grim and bleak for this character when it sort of seems like by all accounts he should probably just let her go. But he doesn't. I mean, and none of his none of his reasons for not letting her go are virtuous. They're all about not being taken advantage of and making sure that people don't think he's a sucker or a bad PI. It's really interesting that he doesn't he doesn't profess to do it for moral reasons. I I think that it's a case of having his cake and eating it too. 
because if he turns her in, that case is all wrapped up in a nice little bow. You know, he gains nothing more at the end of it than the money that she gave him to solve the case. So at the very beginning. So he gets the money for like something he can put in his books that the job's well done. You know, like you said, it's his own self-interest rising above everything else. But also... He can he can also he can point to it. It is the moral high ground, honey. You killed somebody. You gotta go to jail and you know face the consequences. But he doesn't. But he, he can doesn't fall, claim yeah. that's the reason. He doesn't claim no, that's the reason. He, he doesn't do it for justice. But it's always there. I think that's a part like a depth of his character where he is so smart that he's he set himself up that even if he had an inkling that O'Shaughnessy killed his partner somewhere around the middle or even from the beginning, he knows that that's some more leverage he has against her. Like if she ever steps out of line, he could be like, well, I know you killed my partner and use it against her. He just chooses not to do it. Well, one thing I think is really funny is that as he's telling her that he's going to send her to prison, he's going to call the cops to arrest her. She's pleading with him. She's saying she loves him and she wants to spend her life with him. And, you know, he can't do this to her. And he's like really tempted. He's like, I know, like you say, you love me and maybe I love you too. And then take a beat. I just can't be a sap. Like It's like, it's like the most, yeah. it's like the most hilarious, like all this, like his, the, the, the life, the possible actual life or death of his possible love on the line, but he can't live in a world where he's, a, where he's thought of to be a sap. Um, and that is just a no, really, no. And we, we don't and get that I in characters now. Disagree. Okay. But I strongly disagree with the fact that he was ever debating being in love with this woman. Okay. Because how many times did she lie to him? She's a murderer. Yeah. And not only was one of the people that got, uh, she didn't murder him, but one of the people that was murdered at the beginning was her former lover that yeah. effectively was doing Spade's role as being a, the male bodyguard for him, for her, for uh, Bridget. Uh, you're putting your own neck in a noose setting up with this woman. I yeah, think Spade, Spade was, I think he was lying to her, being like, I'll wait for you. I think he was just trying to be nice. You the know, give her would, some hope. Would, yeah, we'll never know, though, because of the way that Hammett writes, where he does not give us any internal thoughts of the characters. He only gives us what they say, which is another really good reason to keep making this into a movie, honestly, because you can do this in a variety of ways. Um, something I find so interesting about this entire uh, genre, if you want to call it the PI genre, we won't call it the detective genre, we'll call it the PI genre, is that there's so much room for interpretation, both literally in what the character's thinking and how they're portrayed in the story, but also in terms of like sort of postmodern looks at them. Like, for instance, it's not a spoof, but have you seen uh, Robert Altman's The Long Goodbye? No, I I remember I read that story, but it's been years. So The Long Goodbye, just as I was saying before, it'd be really interesting to have Sam Spade uh, exist in a sort of 21st century hipster world where all of his sensibilities are turned upside down by the by the morals of today. Um, they sort of already made that movie, but they made it take place during the sort of uh, 
cultural ennui of the 70s where they've got Philip Marlowe, but instead of the guy being sort of a tough as nails, uh, smarter than everybody, you know, dude, he's kind of, he's, he's sort of a beaten down dog of society and he suffers the same sort of cultural ennui of everybody else, the sort of the uh, the collapse of the '60s and the moral decadence of the '70s leading into the '80s. I mean, it's it's super fascinating with material like this because it says so much about America. And as America changes, you can keep revisiting this genre and twisting it to your own sensibilities. Yes, that's that sums up exactly the way I feel about uh, the horror genre, in yeah. my opinion. You know, it it always reflects. The major horror always reflects the major fears of the era. You know, uh, you look at Dawn of the Dead by Romero, and that's all about being afraid of consumerism with the zombies in the mall. And then you look more towards like the future. We've had zombies again in like World War Z, but and The Walking Dead, but now it's about like viruses and groupthink kind of affecting everybody and being right. afraid of swarms. Whereas you can also look at the the PI genre and see how those detectives evolved, where Spade starts off, he's, you know, he's always wearing a suit, he's always making sure that he looks presentable, and he's, you know, he's willing to work with the cops. But then as you get further on, you get a little more, like, uh, with your example, The Long Goodbye, where mm-hmm. they're just kind of uh, a relic, of the old system that are trying to hang on. Am I right in that kind of interpretation? Yeah, absolutely. So before, and then moving on, I think more interestingly, sorry, uh, go ahead. The, the big Lebowski from the nineties. Absolutely. No question. It's a complete slacker mentality of, you know, being a detective where he doesn't even want to do the job. He's the anti-Sam Spade, but he's the anti-Sam Spade existing in a Sam Spade world. I mean, there's no question that's what the Big Lebowski is. I don't even think the Coen brothers would deny it. Like, it is a detective story of the old Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett variety with a character who resembles them not at all. Yeah, but they still meet the same eclectic cast of, you know, characters all involved in this cockamamie plot around an object that may just be a red herring at the end of the novel. It only yep. serves as, as like in the inciting incident, you know, right. and the, the inciting incident that just kicks everything off. You know, Bogart gets hired by a woman to find her sister, but it turns out to be a goose chase for this mythical bird statuette. Mm-hmm. And in the big Lebowski, uh, a case of mistaken identity and a rug getting stolen uncovers, you know, a vast conspiracy that lying underneath everything. Uh, yeah. I just love how adaptive or how you can adapt this kind of story, this framework and give it a new coat of paint and yet have it resonate on an entirely different level with an entirely different generation of people. It's a fascinating genre. So let me ask you one final question before we wrap up. Um, like I said before, this book reminds me a lot of The Godfather and how it was written. Um, and this might be, you know, a question we can't actually solve, but Mario Puzo, I love The Godfather, but Mario Puzo famously claimed he only wrote The Godfather to turn a buck, that it didn't mean anything. I see a lot of meaning in The Godfather. I see Mario Puzo trying to say a lot in that book, but he claims he tried to say nothing. My question is, with this book, is Dashiell Hammett only interested in basically 
telling a pulp story dime novel, turning a buck and moving on? Or do you think he's trying to say something broader uh, about some sort of aspect of life in America at that time? I think he's trying to turn a buck because he's sensationalizing an otherwise boring job. Mentioned at the very beginning, nine times out of ten, a PI is doing nothing but, you know, dirty following people around, taking grainy photographs through windows, you know, that kind of stuff. When people want that romantic mythos of the private eye standing up and, you know, against the underground and defeating Mm -hmm. like a whole ring of criminals single handedly, guns a blazing. And what that's all that. Dashiell Hammett was doing. He was giving the people, he was feeding them and the mythos at the same time of what the people wanted. If he told a a real detective story, I'll put it this way. There's, in the spy novels, you've got James Bond Mm -hmm. and you've got George Smiley. Yeah. They're entirely, they're doing the same job as a spy, but one is going around the world making love to beautiful women Fighting the big bad in a and the other is base. James Bond. Yeah, <laughs> sorry, I couldn't exactly. Agree with you said you said it. You set it up too well. Um, no, I totally agree with you, and I think that even if he didn't intend it, especially for some for people like us of our generation today, he sets the scene so well that even if he did not intend meaning, that does not mean you cannot uh, credibly extract meaning from it. A good author, yeah. I think it's impossible. He's a good author. He's a good writer. And he and he tells a story taking place in his time that is so um, well thought out and artfully illustrated that, that anybody with half a brain can look at this story and be like, wow, what an interesting reflection of American ideas at that time. Yeah, and especially because there's no inner monologue. Yeah. There's never a point where a guy's like, Oh wow! This just shows how corrupt our uh, law enforcement is. Right. Or, Thank God know, for it. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Exactly. And I think uh, the, to quote a pop country song, uh, they say it best when they say nothing at all. That right. way you can put your own interpretations on top of it, and the malleability you get out of it down the years uh, just shows how good the bones are in this type of story. I totally agree. All right, Sean. Uh, let's talk about the next episode on this episode right now before we wrap up, just real quick. So we've just done a book that was technically your choice, which has technically been made into a movie. We've also discussed that my next choice will be The Prestige, a book I really want to talk about. However, that would make it two movie books in a row, which I'm not sure that we should do. So what I'm thinking we should do is you pick a book that's not a movie, and I'll read it, and we'll do that. The only upside to doing The Prestige next is that we could possibly get an episode out sooner. But I think it would make for a less consistent format if we did it that way. What do you think? Uh, let's just go for the prestige. Let's stick to what we're doing. Okay, and so we'll bring... We'll, to reread that. Yeah, we'll start the pattern after the prestige of going uh, movie book, non-movie book. All right, guys, so that's good. So the next episode will be another movie book, the, the Prestige. And then after that, Sean will get his pick, will be a non-movie book. Sean, I'm glad we're doing this again. And I'm going to, uh, you know, it's really, it's really good to be back at it. And guys, just consider this uh, season two of Full Dusty Jacket, a literary podcast for gentlemen and gentlewomen. And uh, if you, although, you know, no, we, we've read books, I feel, that aren't just strictly appealing to men. So I was going to say that maybe we only choose books that are 
you know, strictly testosterone, toxic, you know, masculinity books. But I don't really <laughs> think that's true at all, actually. Um, but hey, guys, if you like the podcast, please rate and review on iTunes. That helps a lot for uh, getting new listeners. Sean, it was a pleasure as always. Yeah, I look forward to Dusty Jacket 2, Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> okay, great. All right, buddy. Thank Take you for all listening. Yep. Uh,